Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome, everyone, to Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. And again, we have our questions from our fans. We really appreciate all this interaction with you guys. And of course, we've got a few corrections. And <laughs> one of them is from Jerry. And Jerry said, hey, Ron, the 30 Remington was the rimless version of the 3030. It was chambered in both the Model 8 and 14 Remington rifles. And that is correct. Um, essentially, they just turned the rim off the 3030, and that made it function a lot more smoothly in the auto-loading rifle, that Model 8. And the 14, I think, was an upgrade on the Model 8, but that's roughly what it was. And a lot of people commented on that it was an old old cartridge back in 19 oh gosh was it 06 or 08 so that's an oldie uh not too many of them around anymore but it was used to make some modern cartridges and we may cover those someday all right um this one is someone commenting on something they saw on the ron spomer outdoors youtube channel and it was about bullet spin drift and lift. A lot of questions about whether bullets climb after they leave a barrel and stuff. We'll go over it again and again and again and fine tune it if we can. So this is from Whiplash and he says, uh, Brian Litz does a great job explaining both of these phenomena. That would be spin drift and lift. Spin drift, clockwise or counterclockwise barrel twist dictates the direction of the drift. That is true from what I know. The more stable your bullet is, a high twist rate to stabilize a long bullet, the more spin drift your bullet will incur as the bullet is working more against the gyroscopic stability produced by the rate of spin as the bullet traces through the air. I think I got what you're saying there. Clockwise twist, the bullet will point slightly toward the right and the resulting drag forces the bullet to the right ever so slightly. Okay, a little bit tip to the right, and the force would push it. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, and the opposite is true of left twist barrels. Sure, 
Think about the way a football traces through the air and how the nose of the ball follows the curve of its path. Gyroscopic stability affects the ability of a bullet to keep his nose pointed along its path. That all sounds pretty reasonable, Whiplash. And if you got it from Brian Litz, I've got to believe it because that guy knows his stuff. If you folks don't know Brian Litz, he is an engineer. He understands all the math and the complicated equations of this stuff, and he really knows his ballistics. And you can get several books that he's written, and I think he still works for um, Burger Bullets. So he does a lot of uh, hands-on research and really knows his stuff. If you want to get into the weeds on ballistics, good man to read. Now, there here's something from an Anthony. Oh, <laughs> he's really after me here. For the love of God, Ron, it's a 450 Bushmaster, not a 458 Bushmaster. Lots of laughs. You've said it wrong at least six times now. <laughs> I guess you're right, Anthony. I just thinking I'm sort of merging the 450 Bushmaster and the 458 SOCOM. <laughs> oh man! Now here's the thing about the 450 Bushmaster. Now these are both cartridges that are short and fat to fit through AR-15 rifles, and they were developed by folks interested in superior knockdown performance for military applications and such in those kinds of rifles. And the uh, the 458 Bushmaster actually uses a 0.452 inch diameter bullet, which is a little unusual. Normally you think 45 caliber, it's a 458. The 458 Bushmaster actually is using a 0.458 inch diameter bullet. So I better keep those straight. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Anthony, for pulling me up short and straightening me out on that one. Okay, here are some new ones that the team has put together. And we are going to answer Nate's question first. And Nate asks, I saw a short YouTube where you were talking about boar snakes. Wanted to know your thoughts on whether they could damage the rifling or the muzzle crown. Keep up the videos. Okay, thanks, Nate. Yeah, a boar snake is that long nylon-y rope thing that has some bristles on it. And uh, the nylon material in there helps scour out the boar. It's designed to pull through a boar to clean a rifle quickly. And some guys have commented that they actually get a cleaner rifle with that boar snake than they do with traditional hard rods and cleaning techniques. I don't know if I can believe those folks because most people who clean barrels do not use a bore scope to take a careful look at what they've accomplished. They just look in the muzzle. They might put a, a mirror or something in to get a little more light in it. Um, and it looks nice and shiny. But when you run an actual bore scope down it and look at it highly magnified, you often find out that your shiny clean barrel Really not all that shiny clean. But hey, we'll just take their word for it. If they say it looks cleaner when they've run a boar snake through it, I'm not going to argue with them. I do not think you're going to end up with any damage on those things. When I'm, what I've seen of them, the bristles are fairly long and small or, or thin. They're not really hard and they're copper or bronze. They're not going to be damaging a steel crown. The damage to a crown from cleaning that's often talked about usually comes from the rod itself, a hard steel rod, for instance, or even a coated rod. A lot of rods, cleaning rods are coated with nylon or some kind of a polymer or something. 
Um, and then if they pick up grit and you do a lot of vigorous cleaning and you slide that rod against the very exit of the muzzle, the rifling, you could rub and wear that rifling down uh, unevenly. And then you get different airflow around your bullet when it exits and it drives it off and screws up your accuracy. That doesn't often happen. That's why we always say clean from the breech if you can. And with uh, bolt action rifles, of course, that's wonderfully easy. Single shots usually too. It's the uh, lever action center a problem and the pump actions. So uh, do try to clean from the breech. Use a bore guide if you can. That is inserted into the breech and it keeps the rod from rubbing the rifling right there at the throat where it starts. Um, but then when you come out, if you do it vigorously and the rod falls after you've pushed your jag end or brush out of the barrel, you're touching the rifling and the at the crown that way too, but at least you're not rubbing it vigorously back and forth. So those are essentially what you're going to be concerned with with cleaning, but I sure wouldn't worry about a boar snake unless you're dragging it through there a lot. Joseph asks, what is the most important loading and ballistics information to keep track of when hand loading? I've been hand loading since about 2008 and my data is scattered between the last three cell phones I've had, random paper targets and legal pads. Boy, this sounds familiar, Joseph. Do you have any insight into resources or formatting that will help new hand loaders keep track of what's important? <laughs> yes. Back in the day when I got started, my brother and I used index cards. So we would have an index file, good old fashioned paperwork here. And one would say 30 out sex, Bob's or 270, Ron's, whosoever it was. And then we would have index cards in it that would represent one box or a lot of ammunition. And back then we were just doing 20 round boxes. So we would have a box lot number one. It would be Remington Brass, and we got it on this date, and we just put in all the particulars of it. And then when we loaded it, we would mark off, loaded it this one time, all 20 cases, full length, three-sized, or neck resized, or whatever we did, that sort of data. Keep track of what you've done to that brass. And then we would put in the load data. We used uh, 58 grains of an H4350 or whatever it was, um, and the bullet. And then later on, we started keeping track of the seating depth because all those things are going to be determining your precision accuracy with your reloads. So with the reload, you want to know what case did you use, what lot it was from, um, the primer that you used, probably the lot that that was from too, the powder you used, the quantity of that powder, the lot of that powder, because those can change slightly from lot to lot. That means a big manufacturing run of that particular one. Um, and then the bullet, and then the seating depth, and then what you've done to those cases. Have you full length resized them and how many times? Did you clean them? All that kind of data. My goodness, no wonder you're losing track of this stuff, Joseph. I'm making myself dizzy just talking about it. So we use the index cards to write all that stuff. And it worked pretty well because usually a 20-round box, we would load it four to maybe eight or 10 times before the brass started to wear out. Your primer pockets would get too big. You might get cracks in the neck or something, and then you throw it all away and get another lot. And then we'd fill that card up and throw it out if we didn't want to keep it, keep it for reference if you wanted later. But it was a pretty nice little system. And then later, I went to a full page system, and I just used a typical high school binder, you know, three punch holes on it so I could add papers and take them out. And I would make lines and have all the data and information on there. 
Those are always nice for keeping track because you can keep those in your loaning room right by your bench, open it to whatever cartridge you're working with for whatever rifle you're working with, keep all that information handy. But I will have to admit over the years from time to time, I've removed a page to take it somewhere to show somebody or somehow lost it. <laughs> and tell you what, you want to cry, lose an entire page of hand loading data for a particular rifle that you've been working with. Uh, <laughs> kind of have to start all over. A good way to double up there is to write the information on the box. If you have a 20 round box of ammunition, write on there most of what you need to know. Now, this is has been loaded on this date with this bullet and the ballistics are such and such or the muzzle velocity is such and such. Some basics at least so you have it on your box. And most bullets will come with a little sticker that has information for you to write in. It'll What's the muzzle velocity? What's the seating depth? What's the bullet? What's the case? And all that stuff. And you can stick that on your box too. Now, as for the digital version of keeping track, I'm sure there are some wonderful programs out there. I am just an old fud, I'm afraid, and I don't like to play around with the electronic stuff on my phone for keeping records. It just seems foreign to me, and the paperwork seems to work well. If you have all that stuff scattered on three phones, I really don't know how to help you. You're going to have to go in there and somehow pull it out and consolidate it somewhere. Find yourself a good program. I would just do some research on hand-loading records books or, or software or something. I'm sure there are some wonderful programs out there. And then just make it a habit of always keeping track of that stuff. And in this case, I say, do as I say, not as I do, because I've gotten so busy in recent years with various and sundry projects. And I run through so many different rifles that I've borrowed and tested and whatnot that I have trouble keeping accurate records routinely. So that is a great way to do it, though. So that is what I recommend, Joseph. <laughs> Good luck to you on that one, partner. <laughs> hey, if you get a chance and you want to see more of my videos that aren't shown on YouTube or you're not going to hear about it on these podcasts, you might want to check out rsotv.com. Just go to our website, ronspomeroutdoors.com, and up in the bar on top, you'll see RSOTV. Click on it. Check it out. It's a paid service, $5 a month, but we have all of our videos on there, uh, ad-free, and a lot of them that you're not going to see anywhere else. We've got some hunting scenes in there and how to butcher deer and cut up meat and practical things like that and lots of gun reviews and things that just not normally shown on a lot of the uh, commercial channels. We'd sure love to have you. Clearance Man 2, Clearance Man number 2 asks, why did the 260 fail? Well, Clearance Man, I am not so sure the 260 Remington failed. It is not as popular as I think it should be, and it is probably going to go obsolete. Um, but I don't say it failed because it is a great cartridge, and I use it. My wife uses it. We've taken a lot of game with it. Um, if you have one, keep it, <laughs> but you're probably not going to find a lot of factory loads for it anymore. They're phasing that one out because everybody went with the 6.5 Creedmoor. And that is essentially why the 260 failed. Yeah, that 6.5 Creedmoor is actually about 100 feet per second slower than the 260. It doesn't have quite as much powder volume in the case. But it, it became so popular because it was in the fast twist barrels and it was such available in 
they used it for all these long-range shooting competitions, and all the new shooters adopted it. And then, more recently, the 6.5 PRC has come out, another short, but it's a short fat with even more velocity than the 260, and now they've got the 6.5 RPM from Weatherby, and even faster ones like the 26 Nosler and the 6.5300 Weatherby. Poor 260 Remington has just gotten lost in the mix. So that's why it is going to go obsolete, I think. Geo. Geo asks, well, my concern with cleaning my gun regularly is rust. Is that not an issue with modern guns? <laughs> and this comes from a video I did on gun cleaning and how often you need to do it and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, a few folks are a little bit confused over what I said. I essentially say, don't clean a gun, especially not the bore of the gun, until it is inaccurate. But I also said in that, do clean for function. You don't want so much dirt, debris, leaves, and grass and gunk in your rifle that it doesn't function. You need to clean for that. But don't go cleaning the barrel every five shots or every time you go out and shoot it a couple of times. You do not have to have a brand new, shiny, squeaky, clean, perfect barrel. In fact, a lot of barrels shoot much better after they've been fouled with three or four or even 10 bullets. And then they sort of they sort of blend into a, a consistency that you cannot get with a freshly cleaned barrel every time. And if you freshly clean a barrel, usually that first shot and even the first two may not go to the same point of aim as the subsequent shots. So this is why shooters routinely clean a barrel and then shoot one or two following shots, and then they're back to where they need to be for their zero and their consistency. So do keep that in mind. But for rust, absolutely. It's not so much it has to be cleaned to prevent rust. It has to be protected from the moisture and the salts to prevent rust. So lightly oiled barrel after you've cleaned it or even if you haven't cleaned it, just run a lightly oiled patch through it and when you store it and try to store it where the humidity is not really high. I understand in a lot of parts of the world, humidity is always high and your guns can rust just uh, when you look at them. <laughs> so do take that into account. You know, they sell these dehumidifier rods for your gun safe. I think they called them a golden rod or something. And uh, that's something worth having in the high humid areas. And there are also some sort of uh, gel packs, absorbent, adsorbent materials that take moisture out of the air. There's a lot of different ways to combat that. Um, I feel for you guys who live in those really humid environments. I live out west where it's quite dry, and we really don't have much for a rust problem in our gun storage. But yes, definitely you want to keep your guns either oiled or waxed to prevent the uh, rusting. Scott it says, I'm watching your video on the 264 Winchester Magnum, and the question came up, how does the 26 Nosler show inferior ballistics to the 6.5 300 Weatherby when shooting the same bullet at the same velocity? Well, I don't know that they do, and they certainly shouldn't. I mean, both of them shoot the same bullet, 0.264, if you use the exact same bullet in them, and you drive them to the exact same muzzle velocity, they should produce the exact same ballistics. Same everything, drop, drift, energy downrange, speed downrange, all of it. So if I had the numbers different in my uh, video on that, and I haven't gone back to look at it, obviously, I just read this, um, I would say I either took some data down incorrectly um, or somehow screwed it up, but I don't know that I did or not. But if it looks like it, yeah, you are absolutely right. Um, 
if those data are all the same, the bullets and everything, you're good. So one will do what the other. I do believe the 65300 Weatherby can shoot a little bit faster than the 26 Nosler. I don't remember now. It's been a while since I've worked with either one of them or looked at the data, but they're pretty darn close. But sometimes I think the Weatherbys are loaded a little bit hotter, perhaps. Uh, and I can't remember what the powder volume between those two is. And I think what this does bring up is, though, the importance of understanding. It's not the cartridge's name or the cartridge's length or its width or its diameter or its taper or its shoulder angle, all that stuff. It's merely the volume and the allowed SAMI spec chamber pressures. If both of them, for instance, are specced at 65,000 PSI and you load up the exact same dose of powder in it with the same bullet on it, they should be identical in their performance. So you're right on that one, sir. Now, this is from Garrett. Hey, Ryan, you do great work. All right, I like Garrett. <laughs> you do great work. I always enjoy your content. I was hoping to see a video with your take on where the hunting and shooting industries might be today if John Moses Browning never lived. Oh, this is a good one. It's an interesting thought. What we would not have, but what we might have instead. Wow. Now, this is pure speculation, obviously, Garrett. But folks who know anything about gun manufacturing or inventing know that John Moses Browning is sort of the guru for gun development in the United States. He started in roughly 1870 down in Ogden, Utah. And at that time, Winchester was the big driving force in rifles, lever action repeaters. But they were fairly weak. They used a toggle locking system to lock the bolt or the, against the, the breech to hold the cartridge in. Couldn't take a lot of pressure. So what they really needed was a solid, better lockup. So that's what Browning really specialized in. He just had all this mechanical insight to how you can make little levers and toggles and whatever, tie things together and lock them solidly. And that's what you saw with the uh, lever action rifles he improved for Winchester. So he got his start by making a homemade falling block rifle. That became known as a Winchester 85 single shot falling block. He invented it, was manufacturing it with his brother one at a time down in uh, Ogden. And Winchester's CEO, essentially, Bennett was his name, heard about this superior gun, took the train out. <laughs> and back then, the train was something new, too. <laughs> 1860, what was it? 1866 or 68, when the Intercontinental Railroad was first finished. And it came together not too far from Ogden, just on the north side of the Great Salt Lake. They've got the Golden Spike Memorial out there. If you ever want to go out and see it, it's quite the deal. But that was a new way of traveling back then. So he got on that train and came out all the way from Connecticut to see this rifle and talk to Browning and they struck a deal. And then Winchester bought the patents to that rifle and started manufacturing it as the model 1885 Winchester. And that's what got Browning started. After that, every time he invented some kind of a new firearm mechanism, Winchester would buy it. They wouldn't always produce that rifle, but they didn't want anyone else to get it. So they bought the patents from him. <laughs> and he became a wealthy man because of that. But where would we be if he hadn't done that? Good darn question, because I don't know if 
anyone else who came up with his locking systems and lever actions that made them stronger. You know, he kept improving it until he got to the 1894, which is the Model 94 Winchester 3030. Um, And then the 1895, where they had the magazine box stacked underneath the action instead of a long tubular magazine. Then you could shoot the long, sleek, pointed bullets and improve your ballistics considerably. And then he came up with auto-loading shotguns and auto-loading rifles and uh, the pump-action Winchester shotgun, not the 1912, but the, the one before that, the 97. He had a 93 and then a 97 and kept improving on that. And everyone sort of bounced off of that. They'd look at his designs and they'd say, I think I'll tweak it and make it this way. So without him, would someone else have come along and figured those things out and started the ball rolling? I don't know. Now, over in Europe, Peter Paul Mauser certainly did this with the bold action rifle. There were some earlier rough bold actions. Uh, in France, they had one, and there were some in America too, but Mauser was the genius over there for really making the ultimate in a bold action rifle. And it wasn't just the bolt and the two locking lugs. It was the magazine and the way it fitted the cartridges specifically and lots of other neat little details that made for just one beautiful, fine, functioning bolt-action rifle from which pretty much all of today's bolt-action rifles spring. Uh, The same as lever-action rifles and developed off of Browning's idea and then the auto-loading guns developed off of his auto-loading idea. And wow. It's really hard to tell what would it be like without having either of those gentlemen on the scene. Sort of like saying, what would happen with with physics if uh, Einstein hadn't been around to come up with his theories? Well, pretty hard to tell. All right, good question. That's got us thinking. Here is one from Russell, and Russell is one of our patrons on Patreon, and he asks, I have a question regarding suppressors. Seems like suppressors help two things. They lower the recoil and the noise. That's absolutely right. It's annoying up front to deal with the the weight and the expense. So that's for getting one. You've got to go through all this government paperwork to get a suppressor. Uh, But it seems like it's worth it in the long run. A lot of guys think that way. The question is, do suppressors, a lot of people call these silencers, by the way, if you're missing the reference here. Do suppressors have any sort of ballistic benefits, such as acting like an extended barrel sort or anything else? No, they're not going to change your ballistics. They're not going to improve the velocity, for instance. Uh, And they're not supposed to influence the stability of the bullet. That's all done with the rifling. No, all they really do is they absorb some of the gases into the chamber, like a muffler in a car. And then that quiets the blast because it's already expanded and covered it up inside. And so it's a little bit quieter, obviously. That's why they call it a suppressor or a silencer or over in Europe, a moderator. A lot of names for it, but it's not a true silencer. If you think silence is being no sound, there's plenty of sound. The suppressor only knocks about, at best, 30 decibels of sound off the top end. And rifles will routinely explode at 140 to as many as 160 decibels. That's a lot of noise. And knocking 30 off might not sound like much, but decibels are are not just climbing up a ladder steadily. They're, what do they call it? Uh, algorithm? No. I don't know the word for it, but it's a big jump. Uh, a small increase in the number of decibels is a big increase in the actual volume of noise. So they're well worth it for knocking noise down. And that's why they're, I don't know if they're mandatory in, I think they are in some European countries. You have to use them because they don't want all this noise. 
which makes a lot of sense. But over here, somehow they got branded as some sort of a heinous device for crime. I don't know how this really got got started, but some legislator threw it into the uh, original Firearms Act in the 1930s when we were having all of this gang crime with the big crime bosses, uh, illegal whiskey uh, shipping and selling, and uh, think of the big crime bosses of that era. They were using silencers to do hits in the city, like the St. Valentine's Day massacre things and all that. I don't know if they used silencers on that, but it helped keep the sound down so it was more difficult to apprehend these guys. But for hunting, come on, it makes perfect sense. It protects our hearing. It doesn't make it so noisy in the neighborhood when you're shooting. But we've got this regulation thrown into the Firearms Act where it made it part of of an illegal device to use on your gun, like a I think bump stocks are like that now. Fully auto-loading rifles were in that act back in the 30s. So that's the problem here. And it really strikes most of us as weird that fairly progressive European countries like France would allow and or mandate suppressors. And over here, they're just the opposite. It's really odd stuff. But you can get one. There's a process you go through and you have to pay a tax, of course. And the government gets like $200 from you. I don't know if that's every year or just once for that suppressor because I haven't gone through the process and gotten one yet. The reason I haven't gotten one is well, a couple of reasons. One is all that hassle, but the bigger one is I just don't like the looks of the things. I love shooting them when they're on someone's rifle because of that sound reduction, but they just look so silly to me. <laughs> silly me. I'm, I'm putting a beauty over function here, but uh, hey, that's just the way this old FUD rolls. <laughs> So I'll just keep sticking my earplugs in and shooting rifles the old-fashioned way. But I might get around to getting one one of these days. They certainly make it easier to to go out and do some practicing on the range, for instance. You can just keep that noise down. But, hey, those are the benefits. Knocks the noise down and reduces the recoil a little bit. Not as much as a, a break, but well, considerable worth having on there. I think you'd like it. So you might want to give them a try. All right, now, oh, that's it. End of the question. So, once again, I thank of all, all of you for sending in those questions and the corrections, especially that 450 Bushmaster. <laughs> I'll try from now on not to call it the 458 Bushmaster, but I might call the uh, SOCOM the 450 SOCOM and still screw it up. <laughs> hey, guys, this is Ron Spomer wishing you all the best and happy hunting for the remainder of the seasons. In some states, we've got two or three months left. We're kind of in the middle of it right here, right now. And if I stay up here in this studio, keep doing these things, I'm not going to get any hunting in. So I'm going to sign off, hunt honest and shoot straight. I'm going pheasant hunting. places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Oh, that's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.